Welcome to another episode of the Living Wild Podcast. I'm Brent Philbin, and today we have a cross post from the Ancestral Mind, and we have a special guest, one of our biggest guests that we've ever had among any podcast, Dr. Paul Saladino. Dr. Paul Saladino is one of the primary voices in the carnivore movement, and Colin and I sat down with him to discuss the ins and outs of that diet, why he decided on it, and what his future plans are for his business and other businesses in this space. We talk about the misconceptions and everything in between. So real food is the primary first principle of wild foods and how to live wild. And nobody shows that more, well, except for maybe Colin, than Dr. Paul Saladino. And that episode is going to be brought to you right now. The Living Wild Cross Post with the Ancestral Mind begins. Welcome to the Ancestral Mind Podcast. My name is Colin Stuckert, founder and CEO of Wild Foods Co. and TheAncestralMind.com. We are here to cover all things from an ancestral health perspective. We want you to build the ancestral mind so you can think about the decisions you make on a daily basis while considering the first principles of what makes you a sexy human beast. Brent, Philbin. Hey, hey, hey. What's up? Sexy human beast We're here beast with a special in. sexy human beast across from me. Mr. Paul Saladino, is that correct? That's say it. Right? That's it. You might want to. You might want to call me a doctor. <laughs> doctor. Okay. Oh no! <laughs> wow. Saladino. How are you not going to put that there? So, Doc, would you please introduce yourself for the audience? <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm Paul Saladino. I'm a traditionally trained medical doctor. I went to the University of Arizona and got my MD there in 2015. I'm in the last few months of my residency at the University of Washington in psychiatry. But my real interest is functional medicine, which is generally considered to be root cause medicine. So rather than being fascinated with pharmaceuticals, amelioration of symptoms and covering up the issues uh, with medications, I'm interested in helping people understand what the heck is causing them to feel shitty and trying to correct those things at the root. So we're going to talk today about carnivore pretty much. Right. But maybe some other things, maybe, maybe also about plants, maybe about, I have some questions about medicine. You know, every time I hear somebody say functional medicine, right? There's a way where that is still like actual medicine, right? It's not like alternative medicine or what's the difference between that and alternative medicine? You know, I think at this point you're getting into the realm of opinion, but my feeling would be that functional medicine tries to take things that are valuable from many different disciplines and combine it into a rigorous scientific framework. And Perhaps people would debate this, but I think the idea is that it's within a rigorous scientific framework and it's as evidence-based as possible is what differentiates it from alternative medicine, you know, that we're trying to take notions from conventional medicine, take notions from plant medicine, take notions from everything, you know, take notions from biochemistry and do it in the most science-based, reproducible, evidence-based method that we can. Interesting. Brent, you have any questions about that? I'm, I mean, I'm going to have a ton of questions as we go through this, as we go through this thing. I'm, I'm excited to find out about one of my favorites is the, uh, oh, if you want to end global warming, just, you know, go vegetarian. Oh yeah. Some vegan. of the actual topics are going to be fun. We have a whole list of those. We have a lot of questions. We're going to grill the doc. We're going to grill him. Okay. Uh, but before Wouldn't we have the first time, before we hop into that, who is the show sponsored by Mr. Brent? This episode is sponsored by wildfoods.co. They have 
real food, real ingredients, and you can get them in real time really, really, really fast, I'm pretty sure. Just go to wildfoods.co, use the code AMPODCAST12 to get 12% off your order, and they'll know that the podcast sent you. Pretty good today. Not bad. So let's get right into carnivore, okay? I want to know real quick, what is your like two sentence, well, maybe it's not two sentences, but what is the simplest way that you can describe why carnivore and what carnivore? So if people are coming to this podcast accidentally, maybe they don't know who I am or my background, but um, I've become quite interested in a carnivorous diet and we can define what that is in a moment, but I've become quite fascinated in a carnivorous diet for humans over the last year of my life. I've kind of been thinking about this since medical school, but it's been something that I've been fairly obsessed with and doing strictly for the last six months. And by a carnivorous diet, we're talking what we might say is a whole foods animal-based diet with a little bit of tongue in cheek, uh, you know, uh, look askance to the whole foods plant-based diet. So we're talking about a whole foods animal-based <laughs> diet. Nose to tail. Nose to tail, animal-based diet, meaning there are no plants in this type of diet. And the first time I heard about this, I thought that is crazy. That doesn't make any sense. And as I thought more about it and I did some research, I it was so fascinating to me because I began to realize that that was just the conditioning that I'd had from mm-hmm. my entire life. And all of these sort of notions that we've had gently, you know, uh, layered upon us throughout our lives that plants are necessary for X, Y, or Z that just came back in my mind. And as I did research, you know, from a medical perspective and looked at the literature, what I gradually began to understand was like, holy shit, like this is all, this is all bullshit. Like this is not true. And we can go through each of those individual things. If you think about it, you know, with plants briefly, people say, oh, you need plants for fiber. You need plants for certain vitamins and minerals. And then maybe there's the idea that the polyphenols and plants have value for humans. And so as I went through, it was interesting to kind of dig into all those pieces and think like, do I really believe that? Is that really true? And what I discovered gradually was that I thought that that wasn't necessarily true. And then on the flip side, the animal foods, if we're eating nose to tail, not just eating the muscle meat in the carnivore world, there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. And a lot of people end up just eating meat and water. But if we look at that from a nutritional biochemical perspective, that's not going to provide a complete amount of uh, nutrients for a human being. But if we eat nose to tail, there's this really beautiful symmetry there around the idea that you can get everything you need as a human in the most bioavailable forms eating an animal nose to tail. And that's not a light statement to make. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. a fairly tectonic statement in, in the realm of nutrition to say you can get everything you need as a human being to function optimally in the most bioavailable forms for eating an animal nose to tail. I think what originally drew me to the concept was this idea that you see anecdotally that people are improving from autoimmune conditions when they do this type of diet. And that's not unique to a carnivore diet. And we can talk about the non-unique quality of that, but people get improvements from all sorts of things, doing all sorts of diets. And the, the response that I often get from people is that, okay, people get improvements on vegan diets, people get improvements on carnivore diets, people get improvements on, you know, whatever diet, a banana diet. And <laughs> they say, well, that, that means that diet doesn't matter, or that means that no diet is better than another. And I would debate that, that corollary to, that, to the first statement. And I think that it means that there's value in all of those interventions. We need to figure out which part of that intervention is valuable and replicate that for patients. Because as a physician, ultimately what I'm trying to do is create uh, situations where people can get better, where people can improve their quality of life and reverse their illness at a root cause level. And so 
when I see things happening, whether it's in the society or in worlds of specific diets, and people are getting better from conditions that are very hard for me to treat as a Western physician with medications, it raises my attention. It, it gains my attention very quickly. And I think that is really cool. What is going on there? What were those? Uh, mostly autoimmune or there's some other, some other it's ones? It's mostly autoimmune, but people, I mean, if you think about the spectrum of autoimmune disease, it is broad. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all sorts of things. And so my traditional training in residency is in psychiatry. And one of the things that really struck me was improvements that people were getting in mood and anxiety disorders with this type of diet. Those are not traditionally considered to be autoimmune, but I would argue strongly that there's a ton of evidence that for many people, mood disorders, depression, anxiety, and even bipolar potentially has components of this. And even things like psychotic disorders or OCD, you know, there's evidence that in those disorders, we have activation of the immune system in the brain, primarily things like microglial cells, which are brain-derived macrophages, suggesting that there is autoimmunity happening in psychiatric conditions. But I noticed, I was like, wow, people are really reporting with a strong preponderance an improvement in these conditions with this type of diet. That is wild because I'll tell you, being a Western physician and doing Western things, whether it's giving uh, antidepressant medications or anti-anxiety medications, they don't fucking work right? Mm-hmm. It's really hard to treat medicate. It's really hard to treat psychiatric disease with medications. Like they don't work. They have horrible side effects. So to see something like diet that is improving recalcitrant conditions or difficult depression or anxiety for people, that is like, holy shit, what is going on here? That is wild. That did, is something I really need to understand. How did that happen though? Did you just, were you just like one day someone mentioned carnivore and you're like, well, let me try some of my patients. Were you, were you, did you start something that was like real food with vegetables? And then you're like, let's try a week without vegetables. Like obviously there, needs to be, there was some kind of evolution of how you went from maybe just eating better, which is what you probably recommended before yep. to eating only animals, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been thinking about food for many years of my life. I've been, before I was doing a strict carnivore diet, I was doing sort of an organic paleo diet, a very strictly organic paleo diet for probably 10 years or 12 years. You know, when I was in medical school, people thought I was crazy with the way I ate. I was very strict with it. It's always been interesting to me the way that food creates health or disease in people. Mm-hmm. And I've always thought that leveraging food was such a, a huge fulcrum that we, we misuse and we underestimate in Western medicine mm-hmm. strongly. And so that was the evolution is basically what happened was someone told me about a carnivore diet and I thought that is crazy. You know, all the conditioning was just there. That is crazy. We need plants. We definitely need them to poop or we need fiber, whatever. And then as I looked into it more, I found websites like meatheals.com and some of the other sort of cataloging websites of people talking about their experiences. And admittedly, these are anecdotal, but that's how the movement starts. I mean, the plural of anecdote is not evidence, it's hypothesis. And when there are hundreds of people and thousands of people getting improvement in conditions that are basically impossible or nearly impossible for me to treat with Western medications that do not address the root cause, I think I need to be aware of this, you know? And I think anyone that would ignore that would be remiss, especially in medicine, because they want to help people get better. So as I looked more into it, I thought, that is crazy. That is really incredible. What is going on there? What is that phenomenon? I need to understand it more. And then I sort of dug into it. Did you recommend patients eat like a paleo style diet before? And then you started recommending more carnivore? Or like, what has that been? So this is interesting. It speaks to the context with which someone approaches a physician, right? So 
you know, when I'm seeing patients in residency or I'm seeing patients in the hospital and I just sort of like see them and they, they find me accidentally, they're mm -hmm. not expecting to be asked about their diet and lifestyle mm -hmm. because unfortunately a lot of physicians don't address diet and lifestyle. But, you know, in my, I have a private practice kind of on the side of the residency and in, in that practice, people are coming to me expecting to do functional medicine. So when people are looking for root cause that is functional medicine in their physician, they're much more willing to talk about diet diet and lifestyle. But when I'm seeing patients through the residency, they're not really finding me in the right way. And they're not really having to work for that knowledge. They're not really expecting to do root cause medicine. They're mostly expecting to do to get medications. Yep. And so what happens is in those type of people, it's actually really difficult to recommend dietary change. And I don't recommend a carnivore diet to many of those people, but in the functional medicine practice, I definitely have. And those people are the people that have done it, have found some really incredible benefits and all sorts of things, autoimmune conditions, even way outside of, you know, psychiatric things. Cause in my functional medicine practice, I see people with all sorts of things. So did you have patients or clients or what do you want to call them that were doing maybe like a mixed paleo cell diet with plants and animals or whatever. And then you're like, Hey, let's just try straight carnivore for a period of time. Maybe because it's one nagging thing we can't really, we haven't been able to resolve. Like, do you have like any anecdotes for that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's tons of people out there. I've definitely had clients who have inflammatory bowel disease. So Crohn's or ulcerative colitis who they, they're, they're super motivated. So they usually do a lot of different diets. They try plant-based diets, like vegan diets, and then they sometimes end up on paleo diets. And then it's pretty radical for people to consider a carnivore diet. And unfortunately they usually end up there out of desperation, but there's, there's more and more literature and even documented case studies that are published in the literature of people with inflammatory bowel disease, for instance, having resolution on carnivorous diets relative to paleo diets. And that's what I've seen in my practice too. The people who have gone even from what would you, what you may think of for some people as a very healthy paleo type diet without things that you might consider to be general offenders, grains, seed oils to a carnivorous diet have had marked improvement in inflammation, histology, colonoscopy viewed uh, lesions in terms of Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. So you see this actual resolution, which is just jaw dropping mm -hmm. because Western medicine doesn't even know about this, you know, like yeah. people with Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, they're on horrible medications. I mean, in terms of side effects, they're immunologic medications that cause really significant deficiencies in overall immuno immune function. And so when we treat autoimmune disease, we generally do it with immunologic medications that damp down the immune response. And that makes people susceptible to all sorts of other problems mm -hmm. or causes hormonal imbalances. So this is a really tricky thing, but to see people having improvement when they cut out plants that are supposed to be valuable for them, especially because the mainstream functional medicine dogma right now is that you need fiber for good gut flora, which I would strongly debate, and that you need plant molecules to have a healthy gut. That's just, it's really counterculture. It's quite disruptive to say, actually, for some of these patients, the plants are probably causing this in some way. They're probably causing an immunologic phenomenon. I've also seen this with patients with interstitial cystitis. So this is a condition that's an autoimmune condition in the bladder. Very difficult to treat in Western medicine. In fact, the treatment is palliative, mm. you know, there, there, there are no treatments. I mean, most of Western medicine is like that. Most of what we yeah. do in Western medicine is palliative. We don't, we're not very good at correcting the root cause. Wait, um, can you define that real quick? I don't know the word. Palliative just kind of means that you're treating the symptoms. Okay. You know, okay, like making sense. them feel good. Kind yes. Of, you're like, making as best someone, you can. <laughs> you're making someone comfortable. Yeah. As they deal with their thing that, that you can't fix. Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. It's often used in the setting of like death and dying, yep. palliative medicine, but even for something like, you know, immune conditions, you could use it in the context of immunologic disease like rheumatoid arthritis, you know, you're going to treat someone's pain, you're going to try and palliate the inflammation with a steroid, but you're not, you're not actually correcting the root cause. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That makes perfect sense. So yeah. thank you. This yeah. is a good segue because you, you start talking about how plants might actually be contributing to these issues. And when they remove them, they're getting better. What are those mechanisms? Because for most people, you know, again, it's like leafy greens, what they're supposed to be the best thing ever that I can eat. So why are they maybe not? And why for some people, could they actually be a deterrent to their health goals? Right. So there, there are myriad plant toxins and there are probably so many different categories that we could talk about at things in plants. The overall uh, theme, the overall meme to consider here is the fact that a plant, just like an animal, has its own interests in terms of DNA propagation and propagation of its DNA lineage in mind. And so plants want to survive. And plants are rooted in the ground. And so in order to do that, over the last millions, hundreds of millions of years, the plants have co-evolved with animals that move around and want to eat them. Mm-hmm. What plants have done is evolve defense mechanisms. These evolved plant pesticides. And when we think of pesticides, we imagine that pesticides are things that we're spraying on crops. Well, there's a great paper by Bruce Ames and the title, the uh, title is, you know, plant pesticides, uh, you know, 99.9% natural. I read that study the other day. Yeah, I was yeah. going to ask you about that. Study. Yeah. Yeah. We can talk about it. Yeah. Blew my mind. <laughs> it's crazy. Like, and it's not the study. I don't actually know why he wrote the study, whether he was writing the study to say, Oh, glyphosate's not a big deal, which I would totally disagree with glyphosate being roundup being the, yeah. the major exogenous or, you know, man-made pesticide that we spray on mm-hmm. plants. But Really, if you think about the amount of plant pesticides we are ingesting every day, most of them are coming from the plants we are eating. In the yeah. paper, he estimates that humans ingest 1.6 grams, I believe, of plant pesticides per day. And, and that's like, again, that's the number where the 99.9% comes. Natural plant pesticides. Natural right? plant pesticides. Yeah. In contrast to perhaps 0.01% of that number, which would be on the order of like micrograms of glyphosate that you may- Or you like know. other sprayed mass yes, agricultural. Yes. And again, I don't know if he wrote the paper to say, oh, these agricultural pesticides yeah. are not a big deal. The way that I read the paper is that, yeah, agricultural pesticides are a really big deal. Different molecules can have different potency or be different damaging in different ways. But the idea that what I took away is that there are a lot of plant, quote unquote, pesticides that that plant makes. And these have all sorts of effects in humans that are often ignored and very rarely tested. Mm -hmm. Many of these pesticides have not been tested. These plant pesticides have not been tested for teratogenicity. That is uh, the ability of them to make uh, tumors grow. And, you know, there's another, there are all sorts of metrics that we can use to assess that. One of them is called clastogenesis, which is the ability of these compounds to cause breaks in the chromosomes or DNA damage at different levels. So many of these compounds have not been tested for that at all. We just sort of assume they're good for us because we've always eaten them. And so this is a quite a crazy concept. So that's one thing is that there are plant pesticides. And, you know, in that paper, there's a table that people can look at in cabbage. He lists 42 naturally occurring plant pesticides in cabbage. And that's just, that's just 42. There's probably, you know, a thousand more, but there's 42 that have been characterized. And these are just the most crazy organic chemistry names you can ever see. And they all have been shown to be damaging to pests or herbivores in some way. And, Perhaps most interestingly, the biggest category on that list is the glucosinolates, which are connected with isothiocyanate compounds, of which sulforaphane is one. So this darling of the supplement industry, sulforaphane, found in broccoli sprouts, is really, in effect, a plant pesticide. Yeah, but aren't there some, they, they're claiming there's some hormetic effects to it. Yes. You know, and like <clears throat> Rhonda Kirkpatrick is big on getting your broccoli sprouts, right? So right. what um would be an issue with that. The idea with the plant 
toxins and the plant pesticides is that we may be able to do hormesis. And hormesis is the concept of that a small amount of a poison is good for us. We see examples of this in other ways in our lives. You can think of UV light as a hormetic. You know, we know that humans are evolved to need UV light. Mm -hmm. We need UV light, but too much gives you a burn and can increase your risk of certain cancers like squamous or basal cell. But too little, you'll die. Like if you yep. don't, if you don't have sunlight, if you don't have all UV light, you need it. Yep. And I think, you know, there are other things that are also hermetics like exercise. We know you can exercise too much. Yep. You know, David Goggins might disagree, but <laughs> I think, I think most people would probably admit that, uh, too much exercise will create problems and you, you will die. But a small amount is very good for us or a moderate, I should say, a moderate amount of exercise. And so the, the, the idea is that this may, this concept, perhaps we can extend this concept to molecules and we can get what's called molecular hormesis. And in that, in that concept, a small amount of a toxic molecule may increase the body's ability to generate compounds that deal with it. And the mm -hmm. way that the body does this, if we look at human biochemistry, for 100% of these plant molecules, and that's a strong statement, for all these plant molecules, what we do with them is we detoxify them and get rid of them immediately. There is not a single plant molecule that is known to man that the humans that we humans incorporate into our bodies and use in our biochemistry. So you mean like the cellulose and and all the parts in part in the plants themselves like every bit, every gram, every little molecule of those plants is something that our body basically has to process out. Well, in terms of the plant pesticide, you could argue, you know, there are minerals and vitamins that we can incorporate and use. Yeah, yeah. But in terms of these foreign molecules, right? There are minerals and vitamins that we can use, but those are not unique to plants. But all these plant mm -hmm. pesticides, all these unique plant molecules, they don't participate in human bio chemistry. We don't need plant molecules to function. We detoxify all of them, mm -hmm. whether we're talking about sulforaphane or resveratrol or whatever, we detoxify these molecules, meaning they go through phase one and phase two detoxification in the liver and we excrete them. I think people often hear the idea that there are plant antioxidants and they imagine that these plant antioxidants are getting absorbed in their bodies. And these plant antioxidant molecules are running around doing electron scavenging, which is what an antioxidant does. It's all about the movement of electrons between molecules, oxidation being the loss of electrons, reduction being the gain of electrons. But plant molecules don't do that. We don't get these plant molecules that run around in our bodies and serve a purpose. There's no plant molecule that does that. The plant molecules may affect DNA transcription in certain ways, but they don't have these unique roles in our biochemistry. Mm -hmm. So what happens with a molecule like sulforaphane, which is one of these, a derivative of one of these plant toxins, is that it comes into our bodies, we detoxify it immediately, but some of it gets absorbed and it may have some half-life in the body, whether it's 30 to 60 minutes or two hours. So it circulates a little bit, but in the detoxification process, your body sees it as a toxin because sulforaphane is quite oxidatively reactive. Sulforaphane is an oxidant, meaning it's going to generate more free radicals in the human body just because of its organic chemistry structure. And so what happens is that the body activates this system called the NRF2 pathway in the liver, which increases the production of the body's own endogenous antioxidant. And that's really where we may get the benefits from these plant molecules. So the extra antioxidants that it's basically releasing from your body might have benefit to other areas. May have benefit to other areas may, for humans. Right. May. Mm -hmm. And they, they certainly are. I, I, would, I would not argue that these molecules are not beneficial in that respect. The problem comes on the back end that because these molecules are not of our operating system, because this is Mac and PC, they're, they act like a virus in other ways. They act like a computer virus. I mean, they come in, they can increase glutathione, but then they have other roles that are like a computer virus, meaning they interfere with our own mm. endogenous biochemistry. And in the case of sulforaphane, it interferes with our own biochemistry by competing with iodine at the level of the thyroid and contributing to lower amounts of thyroid hormones. So it's definitely possible to eat enough broccoli sprouts to give yourself hypothyroidism. Mm. So what we find in these plant molecules is a real double-edged sword. It's like, well, 
they're doing something good, but they're also doing something bad, mm-hmm. almost invariably, because they, they, they're not from our operating system. Mm-hmm. And then my argument on, you know, the corollary argument would be, well, you can get, these benefits are not unique to plants. There are plenty of ways to achieve a very robust glutathione status without plant molecules. You don't need plant molecules for that oxidative stress hormesis. This is getting kind of technical, but does that make sense? Yeah. And so then the argument is you can get this from meat, but then meat doesn't have these same downsides, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can do other things in your life to achieve adequate levels of glutathione, like to, what? Uh, exercise, these okay. other things that you want to do, sure. sleep enough, mm-hmm. give your body the building blocks it needs to make glutathione, which are the right amino acids that it needs to make glutathione. So glutathione is three amino acids. You have to make sure you have enough glycine is probably the main limiting amino acid in, in uh, glutathione. People probably get enough cysteine and glutamine, which are the other two amino acids in glutathione. Mm-hmm. So you give your body enough of that. You give it some stress. I mean, exercise creates oxidative stress in our bodies. Mm-hmm. So if you exercise at a healthy level, you will create plenty of glutathione, you know, in a hormetic fashion. It's mm-hmm. You don't need these molecules. And we are exposed to molecules in our daily life in other ways, you know, that are going to create this hormesis. In fact, I think that when people are cooking meat, they hear about polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and heterocyclic amines. And something that is never talked about is that they actually activate the same pathway in the liver. I'm not saying people should go out and consume excess amounts of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and heterocyclic amines. These are like the burnt material on meat. People say, oh, that causes cancer. And that's a whole separate story. But those activate the same pathway in the liver that sulforaphane does. So do they cause cancer and they activate the same pathway? Uh, well, or maybe we're not sure if they cause cancer because they, they do appear to be carcinogenic, but uh-huh. only in very high amounts. Yeah. So in the studies that have been done, they are only increasing the preponderance of tubular adenomas, which are precancerous lesions in the highest amounts in, and that is in the most charred and burned meat. Hmm. So if people are careful with the way they cook their meat, they're going to get a dose of these, which is probably totally tolerable and evolutionarily consistent. Interesting. If people are eating meat, which is burned to a crisp every time, sure. then you're probably going to get a little more and you might have an increased risk, right? Right. But the parallel here that's so interesting to me is that we, sulforaphane is a 20 to $100 million industry. Perhaps it's more, I can't actually find the right industry, but nobody's selling a polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon supplement. Mm. But at the level of the liver and glutathione, they do the same thing. Mm -hmm. They act, I mean, at least in terms of the NRF2 pathway. Would you say then that you don't trust people that order their steak well done? (laughs) (laughs) Because I don't. I think, I mean, there's that meme, you know, like rare, medium rare. And then it's like, you can have a nice crust though on the outside and have a nice red, rare steak in the middle, you know, like that's the best way you should have it. If if, if somebody, you know, it's like the meme is like, oh, that's, oh, I've seen that. Yeah. It's like, if it's anything more than medium rare, it's like unblock, unfollow, (laughs) unfollow, unfollow, block that person. Yeah. I would never trust someone that orders their steak. Well done. That's a horrible idea. Yeah. There are plenty of ways to mitigate the way you cook your meat and think about it. I mean, you, there are compounds produced in the cooking of meat that have been shown to increase the rate of colon cancer, perhaps only, and those I would say are the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and the heterocyclic means. And those are totally avoidable. If you cook your meat in water, you know, if you do things like crock pot, if you do sous vide. Yeah. Or long if you cook long it, and slow is always better. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. if you cook it in a pan, don't burn it. Yeah. And you really will not get any negligible amount. And there's plenty of systems in your body to deal with it. We've been dealing with that for our entire evolution as humans because we've been cooking it over fires. Right. So now the question then becomes with something like this, like let's say somebody's listening and you know, they eat meat, they eat vegetables. They probably even what you're saying makes sense to them. Like, yeah, I I think this makes sense. I agree with this, but why 
then would they want to not eat plants? Because obviously there's a spectrum. Some plants are going to maybe be worse for certain people. What about people that don't have autoimmune dis- issues? Is it like, is it worth the slight benefit you might get? And also the slight toxin, which could have a hormetic effect. Like how do we really figure that out? Cause it seems like there's a range. Maybe that's also based on your heritage, DNA, things like that, yeah, yeah. you know? And I noticed that the thing you said about cabbage, like that's why every time Allison makes butter cabbage, like I don't feel that great afterwards. Probably. This big pot of cabbage, we just cook down in butter and I'm like, it tastes delicious, but I don't feel that great afterwards, you know? So it's like in that instance, then maybe I don't eat as much cabbage, but you know what, like there's obviously ranges here. So like, how would you yeah. best answer that for someone who's like, well, I don't really want to give up my vegetables. And I think that the overarching idea I would, I would suggest here, my postulate is that humans are facultative carnivores and there's a, there's a gray area between facultative carnivore and omnivore, Can right? you define facu- facultative? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's two types of carnivore. And, you know, one of them is obligate carnivore, which is like a, like a lion or a tiger. And those animals don't ever eat plants in their evolution. Like if there are not animals available, they will die because they will never they eat plants. They have to eat it, right. They have to eat animals. Facultative carnivores are things like wolves and dogs. If there are not enough prey available, these can some, they can sometimes eat these things, you know, they might eat bugs or, I mean, I guess bugs are technically kind of animals. They're not plants, but, you know, they might eat things that are not animals. And Mm -hmm. we see this, like people feed their dogs kibble. We feed our dogs sweet potatoes and grains. They're probably not the ideal food for them, but they don't die immediately. Mm -hmm. If you fed a tiger in a zoo kibble, it would probably get sick and, you know, become rapidly sick. But there are animals that are clearly carnivorous and that thrive on totally eating animals like wolves. Mm -hmm. That is the ideal diet for these, but they can use plant material during times of starvation. So that is the distinction I would make that I believe humans are facultative carnivores rather than omnivores. And I'll make the distinction between facultative carnivore and omnivore. But I would argue that humans are ideally adapted to be eating meat and animals, eating animals nose to tail as the primary optimal fuel. But we are so cool that we can also do plants during times of starvation. And what's interesting about that is that if we want to eat plants at times in our lives, we can do that. We won't die. Mm-hmm. But like you said, we might get a little nauseous. And that that really brings it back to like, how in tune is anyone to their body? You know, people might eat plants and they might not even realize, hey, I was a little more irritable after I ate that plant, or I might get a little less sleep. And you know, long-term, is that going to affect your quality of life? Maybe, maybe not. For people that have autoimmune disease, there's a very clear signal there. You need to improve this. But for the rest of people who are eating plants, maybe it's just like little things and it's up to them, you know, to, to build that quality of life equation to decide what they want to do. Um, but you know, it's a little bit of nausea here. It's a little bit of loose stool there, or, you know, they, they have the shits or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, or you don't sleep as well, or you're a little more irritable or even a little skin rash that you don't notice. And so it's really hard to differentiate those or to delineate those until you get rid of all of it and then see how you feel. Yeah. And so the difference between a facultative carnivore and an omnivore is that I would argue that if you're saying humans are omnivores, implicit in that claim is that plants serve a unique role. In the, di- in, the, in the natural diet. Yeah, that plants do something that we can't yeah. get from animals. That mm-hmm. that in an omnivorous diet, we need plants for some specific role. And I would say that's not true. We're probably more like facultative carnivores. And some people might say, well, facultative carnivore, omnivore, it's probably the same thing, but that's just the distinction I would make. I don't think anybody calls a dog an omnivore, although maybe you could argue that. So yeah. I, I would argue there's obligate carnivore, facultative carnivore, and omnivore. And the omnivore would be the people or the, the, the organism that has a unique need for plants in some way. And as far as I can tell from all the research I've done, there is no unique need for plants in the human diet. Well, our ancestors, as we were evolving, you know, whether it's Australopithecus or Erectus or whatever, when we started coming out of the trees, 
they still preferred the fruits and the plants that was that was natural to their diet. It seemed like we might have the theory is we might have started scavenging, and that's how we had access to meat. And then we started standing a little bit more upright when we could use stones and sticks and whatever. And but what I've like we were talking about the other day, it's like the Eskimos or you have other anthropologists that have talked about this. They're like, what do you guys eat when there's, when you're not successful hunting? And they're like, well, when, when, when we don't have food, we'll eat plants or whatever. And it seems like that's kind of a common thing that you find in truly hunter gatherer societies. Is like meat is always the most prized thing. We always go towards it when we can. Whereas our, you know, distant ancestors, whether it's uh, chimps, um, grills, uh, grills like eat a lot of us. They don't really eat meat at all. I don't think, but chimps will eat meat sometimes, nice. but they don't, they don't seek it out. And also I've read that they tend to, it might even be a byproduct of sharing and group cooperation because they'll gladly rip up pieces of a monkey, for example, that they would hunt and they would, they would get with members and they don't seem to fight it as much as they would fight if they had some fruit mm-hmm. because it's like more the thing that's a part of their diet, mm-hmm. right? And so then I just feel like maybe there's a correlation between as we move more to like the big brain homo sapiens, needing to fuel those big brains, like they've talked about, like you need the, the organ meat and the fatty meat and, and the omega threes and all those things, right? So it's like, I could see that, more that end of the spectrum, chimps, more like fruit and what we used to be to more now where what we've become needing more meat. There's, a, there's something called the expensive tissue hypothesis. The idea that in order to get a bigger brain, we had to get a smaller gut. In order to get a smaller gut, we had to have food that was more nutrient rich and calorie yeah. dense. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at the gut of a chimp and the gut of a human, they're completely different. You know, they do, they have so much longer guts and they can deal with all the fiber and the fermentation yeah. and that's the way they do it. And it, it does seem that humans and chimps are not the same. It's our clear ancestor, you know, so we yeah. are, I think that no one is, or very few would argue that we are descended from an animal that is, you know, omnivorous. And I would say that for that omnivore, they have a need for those plant foods. Their gut is the type of gut that is adapted to be eating large amounts of plant foods. And they spend all day eating plant foods. Chewing. They literally chew like seven hours a day. Like all day. Yeah. Because they are so nutrient, uh, they are so nutrient dilute, you know, they have to be chewing. And then the, the microbes in their gut secondarily ferment. And if you actually look at the macros, because of all the short chain fatty acids, they're getting quite a bit of fat in their gut. Just it's being made in the gut from the carbohydrates. So mm. they're having a higher fat diet. It's just coming from the carbohydrates. But as we moved out of the trees and we had access to more nutrient dense foods, we adapted. You know, the brains got bigger, the guts got smaller, the pH in our stomach got much lower, meaning more acidic. So if you look at our gut, it looks much more like a, a wolf's gut mm. in terms of length of the colon, length of the small intestine and acidity in the stomach. As we move more toward carnivorous animals, you get lower and lower acidity in the stomach and ours is very low. It's on the order of a tiger or a dog. And uh, the chimps is much, is, is, is orders of magnitude higher than ours. So more, so less acid, more acid, more acid is more a ability pH. to break down meat or mm-hmm. like, but yeah. isn't cellulose really hard to break down? So how does that? Cellulose only gets broken down, I believe in the, by the bacteria or something. I don't even know how. And ruminant animals break down cellulose. They have like the second gut. They have like a special chamber for yeah, fermenting, yeah. right? I'm not even sure that the, I mean, cellulose can get fermented in the guts of primates, but I'm not sure that monogastric organisms like chimps and pigs yeah. can really even digest cellulose. You have to have a ruminant gut. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, so the big thing that I always thought about when I was thinking about these things, I've been thinking about these things for years is I was figuring out how much would it take to feed the average small band of hunter gatherers. Like let's say it's 40, 40, 40 homo sapiens, right? Right, right? How much food, right? And I started calculating spinach, blueberries, things like this. And we're talking like truckloads of things that you'd have to somehow find in the wild to feed this small group of humans to oh, be able yeah. to survive. And then you like compare it to like a pound of steak or salmon or something. And it's like, it's not even close to the same thing. I mean, I'm talking like, it was like a pallet of blueberries you would need like a ton of spinach that you would need to have like enough calories to even survive for a single day. Right. So in my mind, I'm like, that just seems obvious. 
Right. And if you look at where it's concentrated, I mean, you, you know, like how much work do you have to do to get enough carbohydrate yeah, exactly. to feed right. you? Like if you take down a large animal like an elk, that's hundreds of pounds yeah. of protein and fat, right? Protein is four calories a gram. Fat is nine calories a gram. It's more than twice the value of anything else you're going to find in nature, like mm -hmm. blueberry. Mostly you're going to find carbohydrates in nature. You're not going to find a lot of fat in plants, but some, but like if the humans are fat hunters primarily. I mean, that's the hypothesis of Miki Bendor, who's a anthropologist. And I think that's what we see in other animals. Like I was just reading this today. Like at certain times in the season, like bears will, if they're hunting salmon, they will go for the fattiest parts. Hmm. They'll go for the brain and the skin and the eyes and the organs that are fatty. That's all they want. They don't even eat the muscle meat after that. They just want- I've heard fat. that of other predators as well. They, they go the, for the organ meats. They go yep. for the organ meats and they go for the fatty bits, yep. you know, because those are the most evolutionarily rewarding, right? Yep. You want you want nine calories a gram. And what's interesting is if you look at those fatty parts, they often have unique nutrients. And so, I mean, animals will end up eating the muscle meat, but we often need less muscle meat than we do the other stuff. We have to eat all of it. That's kind of what we were talking about at the beginning. You can't just eat muscle meat. Yeah, well, what about the actual other nutrients other than just calories, right? Oh, the micronutrients, Because yeah. like plants are revered for their micronutrients and their phytochemicals and all these things. But it's like, if you, again, compare on a weight by weight basis, like a pound of grass fed beef or liver or brains or whatever yeah, it is, yeah. what, like, what are some of those ratios and an example? Like you would need like thousands of pounds. I feel like of, of greens to, to equal the calorie, but also even just the other nutrients that you could find in meat. Well, the biggest confounder here is the bioavailability and you will see people compare and say, Oh, there's enough, there's as much protein in broccoli as there is in meat. And that's just total bullshit because yeah, you absorb like a 50% of it yeah, or something or right? even less yeah. like the bioavailability the, of the protein versus the bioavailability in meat versus vegetables is completely different. So if we're just talking macronutrients now, bioavailability is totally different, at least in terms of protein. Mm -hmm. And then if you're talking about micronutrients, now we're talking about vitamins and minerals. Again, if you look at plants, the minerals and vitamins in plants are generally in much less absorbable forms. And there are often competing anti-nutrients like phytic acid, which is just one of the other things that's hard for humans to deal with with plants. Phytic acid is a large molecule that chelates divalent cations. Plants use it to store phosphorus, but it can also chelate, which is like a term that means like a jaw, like Clutch so does it block the absorption of those? Yes. Is that what they do? Because that's yeah. what most people don't understand is it actually blocks absorbing things like iron or zinc or whatever. Iron, right? zinc, calcium, manganese, selenium, all the good divalent cations that you need in your yep. body. So this is the problem with phytic acid in plants. And in a lot of plants, the phytic acid is not denatured with cooking. So soy is quite high in phytic acid and they're only the way, only way to get rid of phytic acid is by fermentation. Mm -hmm. And so bacteria can produce an enzyme called phytase. So if you're just thinking in terms of phytic acid and you're not thinking about anything else, then fermented soy is going to be, have more bioavailable things. I would argue that fermented soy has other problems like phytoestrogens, whatever, mm -hmm. but, um, and it's all GMO anyway. So, yep. but in terms of phytic acid, that's, that's how plants store their minerals. Again, this is Mac versus PC. These are plant viruses in our bodies. I mean, they're not actual virus capsids, you know, and they're not, mm -hmm. but they are, they, I'm using a metaphor there, you know, but they, they don't interact with our body in the same way they interact with plants. These are different operating systems. So these molecules come into our bodies and they say, oh, we're supposed to store this divalent cation. And then they pull out the copper. So if you ask your doctor, you know, what's a good source of magnesium, they'll tell you leafy greens and almonds. Well, that's complete hogwash. That's complete bullshit. Because the bioavailability of magnesium in almonds is garbage. It is pretty low. What would be a plant alternative to that? Or, or a animal alternative? There's actually a decent amount of magnesium in animal meat. Just like straight muscle meat or yeah, yeah, fatty meat? meat yeah, 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 straight muscle meat. I think liver has some magnesium. And then, I mean, if you think about the way that our ancestors got these things, I mean, they, we may have gotten magnesium from spring water. You know, mm. magnesium is not 
commonly found anywhere. Like if you want to get the 400 milligram a day RDA of magnesium is quite curious. Like in order to get 400 milligrams of RDA, not all bioavailability aside from like leafy greens, you have to eat like one and a half to two pounds of kale, which is enough to give anyone hypothyroidism. Yeah. Isn't kale also one of the most like toxic uh, vegetables there are like, especially if you don't cook it, like raw kale is like straight terrible. Well, because of the goitrogens and all these other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it's, yeah, it's kale is a tough thing, but it's regarded as this hero. Yep. But kale is one of the brassica vegetables, just like cabbage that has these isothiocyanates and sulforaphane. And, but the, the bioavailability of magnesium in that is very poor because again, there's all these chelating things in there and mm-hmm. other things which are going to impair the absorption, digestive enzyme inhibitors. So the bioavailability of things is poor in plants. Then people say iron, heme iron and meat has been implicated with cancer, but those studies are confounded by the fact that the only studies in which heme iron has shown cancer or carcinogenesis are in calcium deficient rodents. So there's this very inaccurate model. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to deprive the rodents of, of sufficient calcium in their diet to get anything to happen with yeah. heme iron. But I'll just say that as an aside, but heme iron is absolutely the most valuable form of iron mm-hmm. and anemia is rampant. And to try and get your iron from plants is a horrible idea. Mm-hmm. You cannot get iron from plants in any appreciable fashion. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. And, but if you just eat red meat, you will get plenty of iron because that is the form that our bodies want. That is, that is our operating system. Mm-hmm. We should not be crossing operating systems. And so that's the bioavailability. And you can look at almost every nutrient, beta carotene in plants, very poorly converted to vitamin A, which is very, the retinol form of vitamin A, which is the bioavailable form of vitamin A that we use because of various single nucleotide polymorphisms. This is, it's, there's such a commonality. The list goes on and on. Plant nutrients, very poorly absorbed, very poorly bioavailable. But we the, can that, eat them in that, a pinch, but yeah. And that's, but that's how they're marketed as too. That's what everyone thinks like, yes. Oh, carrots can improve your eyesight or, you know, get magnesium <laughs> from almonds or whatever. And it's like, maybe that's not actually the case or the best way to do it. If you really dig into it, it's pretty shaky ground to yeah. say that, but yeah. it doesn't support anyone selling this stuff right. very well, you know? So Paul, I know that you have a schedule today and I feel like we it's very busy, man. I figure like, we, <laughs> I feel like we covered point one of 10 yeah, that yeah. we probably want to cover. Can I, so I we, just want to ask a real quick question before yeah. you start to round this up. Where does fish fall on this? Are they, fish is great. Uh, okay. They're good. Okay, cool. But obviously I, like you we haven't talked about them at all with heavy metals. Yeah. And, yeah. 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 The context is the other, the, the overarching context of fish is, you know, that, I mean, when we're talking about a carnivorous diet, we're talking about hunting, you know, right. Anything you can hunt that's going to move away from you, whether it's a chicken or a, you know, a flightless bird, a weka or a fish or weka is like a bird in New Zealand. Mm. I'm just like, or, a, or ostrich. Weka, or, weka, weka, yeah. <laughs> so whatever you want to, it's like, you know, animals, all the animals are typically things that our ancestors probably would have hunted. And if it has a way to defend itself and move away from you, it probably hasn't evolved all these toxins and other things. Okay. That makes sense. Yep. The whole mushroom kingdom is a different thing that I'm sort of delving into now. And it's not clear. Certainly there are mushrooms which have toxins in them. If people look at like portobello mushrooms and all of the family of portobello mushrooms, that'd be white button mushrooms, cremini, they're all the same species. There's a couple called agaritine, which is toxic to humans when it's raw. So eating portobellos, white button mushrooms or cremini mushrooms raw is a bad idea. Mm -hmm. I think that agaritine is generally denatured when you cook it, but the mushroom has a toxin there. It doesn't want to get eaten. Mm -hmm. And the question is whether other mushrooms have similar things. I don't think we know. And there's a lot of research now. There's a lot of species. Yeah, a lot of species of mushrooms and a lot of other species of mushrooms that appear to have benefits. So it's not clear. And mushrooms have a whole different respiratory. I mean, mushrooms, I would argue, have a different operating system than plants. Well, they they don't put in the same kingdom. It's actually animals 
And they say fungi is actually closer to animals than it is to plants. And it, it is. Yep. So it's not clear that I think that there's, it's possible that mushrooms may have benefits, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and, and we see that with things like lion's mane and some of these other ones, but it's, it's interesting. We just have to think like, could we be missing some of the anti-nutrients or the toxins, but it, it looks like they, they're beneficial in some ways. So mushrooms might be different. Yeah. So we'll definitely have you back on the show yeah. and we'll take listener questions. If you want to dive into carnivore or any of these topics we talked about, we definitely want to, when you come back, talk about, you know, the misconceptions around red meat causing cancer, uh, maybe some shitty ways that people do carnivore. Cause I've definitely seen some people doing that, like going to, I believe it was in and out burger and buying 15 like charred patties. And I'm just like, <laughs> I'm just like, what dude, that, that, that can't be good for anybody to recommend doing that, you know? And so, and this, this was like an actual YouTube video I saw. So we'll definitely have you back and we appreciate your time. How can they find you if they want to learn more about the carnivore diet or maybe work with you? So the best place is probably my website. It's Paul Saladino MD. That's where you can find stuff about me. And then you can also send me an email directly at paulsaladinomd at gmail.com. If you want to work with me, I see clients privately in functional medicine. My last name is spelled S-A-L-A-D-I-N-O like salad and dinosaur. It's slightly ironic that I have salad in my last name. I'm also on Instagram at paulsaladinomd and I'm on Twitter at mdsaladino. And I've got a Patreon, which is Paul Saladino MD. So, and I've got a YouTube channel, which is Paul Saladino MD. I've done a number of videos on carnivore. People can find me in all those spots. We're going to link to all of them below. And anything else, Brent, before we wrap up? I No, we can't. I can't say anything else because we'll go down another 20 so minute long. rabbit hole. It'll go so long. So, yeah, no, there's no way. Super fast. We'll have him back on. We'll have him back on. But if people have questions about how to do carnivore right, I think they can look at my Instagram. They can look at my YouTube. That'll give them a, more resources. Because like you said, it's really important that we don't do this from the perspective of just eating muscle meat. That's not yes. how carnivores eat. Yep. They eat nose to tail. It's important to eat muscle meat. It's important to eat connective tissue. It's important to get a calcium source. It's important to get omega-3s. Awesome. So, yeah, it's all Th- there. Thank, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks, guys. Shining for the wind is cold. You must return to the wild.